お前は Looks like you're a little late. You just missed him. If I'd known it would have come to this, I'd have killed you when first we met. Nandato Daigo Adoda. Dogoyata. If you're looking for Daigo. Mine's taken him up to the roof. You're welcome to try. This is the end of the line for you, Kazuma Kidyu. Welcome to Abnormal Mapping, episode 24. I am your host, Matthew Marco. With me is regular co-host Jackson Tyler. Hi. And we are just having a twofer today. Yeah, just talking. Just talking about what's going on. This is this is original Abnormal Mapping cast. We've had so many guests and Destiny's been on a lot. It's been and since Dishonored that we've done one of these. Wait, really? Yeah. I thought that... Hang on. Maybe you're right. Maybe it has been yeah. that long. Because after that, it was Mike Joffe. Yes. And then it was End of the Year, which is Minecraft Destiny. We did a little bit with this just you and me, but the bulk of it was with Destiny. Oh, yeah, you're right. And then there was Lana. Okay, yeah. No, checks out. This has been a while. Yeah. Yeah. How have you been in these many months? Um, I'm... I've... In the interceding months, I have stopped playing and started playing video games again, so... Fun. We missed that grim period. Though, you've gone all Mr. Alt Games, I've got a Patreon, and I'm like, I'm playing Monster Hunter and, <laughs> and Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, so. Don't mock, cause I'm ready for Final Fantasy VIII. I'm so ready mm-hmm. for Final Fantasy VIII. I'm about- I'm just saying, you're playing all those art games like Batman. Shut up! <laughs> Batman Arkham Asylum, maybe you've heard of it. Yeah, it's one of the best games of the last generation. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's good. I love it so much. The bit where you fight Killer Croc. Well, you run... The best part of the game is just running on some platforms on water. Hmm. I mean, the best part for me is like, oh, I think that maybe if I climb up this weird elevator shaft in the wrong way, there'll be something, and you go up there and, hey, guess what? There's something. Like, the part where it's just a Metroid game is the part I like the most. Mm. The- Which is you standing in a ruined environment trying to piece together where they probably hid something. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing. Yeah, and it does that a lot. Yep. I got lost like three times uh, because I mi- I had looked at the wrong ledge and then grappled to the wrong place. And 
that it's it's cool i let's play that you're doing you're yeah, i was gonna say you're doing those for videos there's a lot less because i was doing it for videos i did a less, less exploration than i would have if i was doing it on my own yeah you played through it before i played through it before but it was fun it was a fun time i had about a 12 second period where i was like i should play arkham city and then 12 seconds passed you've you've played arkham city yeah, right i know but i finished Ark- look it was 12 seconds and i moved on with my life and thought okay, that would be a terrible fine. idea because arkham did, city you, is bad. did you say this into the camera maybe i should play arkham city oh no i can't no it happened when i closed the game and looked at oh the, that's a bummer. looked at the steam list uh and might i not suggest batman arkham origins <laughs> Oh, part of me wants to know is the worst part after everything you said. It's, it's so uninteresting. It's not even interestingly bad. Like the first hour and a half, I'm like, oh, maybe this will just be like fun in like a really dumb, lesser than sort of way. But no, then it just gets into the worst tedium of city, but without even like the distinction of having good boss battles. Of which city had two, I guess, but whatever. Batman. Batsman. Batsman. It's like Attorney's General. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is it Batsman or Batsmen? Batsmen. Okay. Even though that's a different word. It's complicated. It's, it's Batsman. He's a cricketer. He plays so why don't cricket. you talk about your Patreon a bit, because we haven't done that, really. I said... Like, at length. I know, we kind of, like, put it in the plug zone, <clears> and you were like, uh, you stumbled over your explanation of why you're not charging, but I think it's time to actually talk about it. I've started charging. Oh, okay. Uh, so explain the okay. mess that is Patreon. So, as you summed it up, the government what of is, all of what Europe... What is... <laughs> uh, let's, let's start off. If you if you don't know and you're listening, Jackson, what's Patreon? Patreon is a website, not unlike Kickstarter, where people can go and put the things that they do on the internet essentially for free and allow people to pay them for them. So, but unlike Kickstarter, unlike Kickstarter, it is a recurring monthly thing, or for whenever you make a thing, it is whenever X person does Y. I will pay them Z dollars is the, how mm-hmm. it works. And it's a really cool service for, um, uh, you know, like generally people who are not well served by the current institutions, allowing them to find their own audience. Uh, it's not actually that because as Twitter has well summed up, I can't remember whose quote that was, but it was someone, uh, applying more capitalism to the problem does not actually solve capitalism, but as a band aid, it's a cool thing. Mm hmm. Uh, and so you were doing what on Patreon? I'm doing for everything I do, every uh either let, let's play article oh but I'm only try there, there. Blah blah blah. Uh, I'm charging for let's plays and articles because I wanna do more of those. Uh, but I'll only charge for one a week on the occasion that I get like ridiculously over productive. Mm-hmm. Um like that's that's how I set it out. So it it could be it, anyway, the specifics of mine are less interesting. That's what I'm charging for. Uh I think the stuff I do is valid and, and valuable and good, so I'm, it's good. So that part went well, but the mess that you're referring to is, so this year, the European Union brought in new tax laws called VATMOS, which is changing how people charge for digital goods, which means that the VAT of every purchase has to, um, you know, be applied from the country that the purchase was made from rather than the country the thing was sold from. Uh, which means for every single person who pledges to my Patreon, I would have to um, 
find, get the name, address, tax details, and then pay tax to their respective uh, country. Mm-hmm. And also known as an incredible a burden that no single individual would ever go through. No, exactly. And to make it even more complicated, no one actually knows if Patreon counts because it's a donation-based service. You're not. I'm not selling anything. Uh, mm-hmm. People who are selling rewards through Patreon that counts because that's like an actual exchange of money for goods. But if you're just putting the goods up there and people are donating, the so. There's no explanation anywhere that is satisfying and actually saying who mm-hmm. can do what and who can't do what. So I have taken all the rewards off and I'm just going to start charging for it. And it's a, so little amount of money that I don't think anyone's going to care. So yeah. if abnormal mapping stops in six months because it turns out I've committed tax fraud, then... Hey, it's all on you. I'm <laughs> in a country where this isn't a problem. Okay. <laughs> also, I'm not I'm not taking money from anybody. <laughs> Though, if you want to slip me a few dollars under the table, I'd be happy to take it. <laughs> Wouldn't say no to some cash. Yep. <laughs> Non-sequential, large denomination bills only, please. But I'm fairly sure I'm not because I got rid of the reward system, so I'm not selling anything here. It's purely a donation service. So I am going to keep doing this and i'll keep my head to the ground if anything changes i will suddenly stop charging again but hopefully soon this whole mess will be sorted out and everyone will be able to rest easy at night yeah that's exciting oh uh, yeah i'm pretty excited don't know what i'm gonna write about soon because um, i also got another job writing somewhere else which is cool what are you cheating on our video game website with more writing jackson technically but it's a movie website so i'm cheating on the our, our movie podcast that's fine. It's only once a month. Yeah. It's your movie podcast. Movie. I don't think it's cheating <laughs> when it's your project. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was my movie podcast, I'd be furious. But as it is, whatever. Uh, yeah. And so between that and this, there'll be way more writing from me going up on the internet and over the next few months. You are, you're going for it. Internet <gasps> writer Jackson Tyler. That's the noise of an internet writer. That's the noise an internet writer makes. But as the non-internet writer, what happened to you? <laughs> You know, I don't actually have anything really to talk about, no, I, like, update I meant, as the non-internet writer, you wrote a thing that went everywhere for a while. Oh, I wrote a piece on Ocarina of Time because I was thinking about Ocarina... So this started because I was thinking about wrestling booking and how incredibly simple it is to make sympathetic characters as long as you pay any attention to what it is to be a human being for 30 seconds when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, video games could probably learn from this. And I was thinking of, like, the examples that stick with me the most. And this is relevant to our game club today, because Yakuza is full of great establish a character that you're going to root for moments. Um, but uh, I thought of this one, my favorite scene of Ocarina of Time, which is actually a point where, like, it wants you to sympathize with Link, but I think actually the sympathies are misplaced. And so I wrote about it, and it got featured on Critical Distance and uh, Patrick Klepek's new Kotaku branded worth reading. Yeah, it's a cool article. Uh, thanks. I'll. I only write about the largest video games. <laughs> I also have similar thoughts, especially as someone who did and disagreed with the entirety of his screenwriting degree for two years. Hmm. Uh, they, well, you know, you've we've talked about save the cat in the past. I don't even think it's, like, a bad idea as long as you apply it right. 
I think it's a terrible idea. I, I think it's a thorough misunderstanding of what makes a character, uh, like what brings you in line with the character and what makes the audience care about a thing. I mean, I've read Save the Cat. Like it's one rule in like a book full of like ideas and guidelines. And even the books, like this isn't like across the board. These are just places to get you started mm-hmm. and you need to deviate well, from them yeah. to make something that's yours. I was, I was talking about the way that in this degree and the way that in a lot of just advice that you, I see given on the internet. About about writing in all forms is broad and prescriptive and doesn't actually understand why you would want to do anything in any context. Yeah. And that's, that's, it's frustrating. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I liked. I agreed with you. I agreed with you a lot. Therefore it's good. <laughs> well, isn't that a potentially problematic statement? Yep. So while we're doing house cleaning, we have things to add to the reading list. Yes, we do. Someday I'm going to make you make me a dumb jingle for the reading list editions. What, you mean like... You have an edition of the reading list. Well, you go first. I do have an addition to the reading list. It's called History Respawned. It is a YouTube series of videos that go through with generally uh, his, um, academics, but academics of history rather than games theorists or whatever, and looks at games that take place in the past and how their representations of history conflicts with or just interacts with the realities or the conflicting narratives that that historical period brings so they recently did an episode about assassin's creed unity and um professor david and andres talked about the way the french revolution is portrayed and how the ideas around it are very simplified and how it wasn't really this big violent thing the big the violence is a very small part of it it was mostly shifting uneases in certain classes and lots of people acting out of self-interest and political positioning with spurts of violence in between and they talked about that and they also talked about the idea of assassin's creed core concept is baked in a very modern privilege which is the ability to move around a large city anonymously because back in the 1700s there was not that amount of density of people and everyone had a familiarity with their location that if someone was out of place they would be known and those were two ideas that i found really interesting and i've been going through this whole series and i think it's incredibly valuable and if you haven't uh, heard of history respawned they're just on youtube and they're on our reading list page if you want to get to them uh then you should go check them out okay yeah i have not watched this i should do that they're good um, my edition this month is Top Score, which is a podcast, uh, from Minnesota Public Radio, um, hosted by Emily Reese that is a video game music podcast that's weekly, uh, that mostly involves interviews with the game composers about their work and their influences and what they were trying to do with the games. And it is entirely music focused, like it barely talks about the games that are being covered except in like, Here's how the themes might have influenced the music, or here's like why the music was a certain way because it had to fit into like here like a bunch of like MMO style frameworks or whatever. It's a great podcast. It's what I wish more game music podcasts were, but clearly you need to have the access and have someone with a musical background to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's hard, I, but mm, I love Top Score. It's great. As a big yeah. music nerd, of course I do. 
Mm-hmm. It makes me want to make music. You should, you should well, you can continue making comics to make music one day. I'm too busy. Yep. Someday I will. When I find that extra four hours in the day. When I found Top Score, like, just like you, I was surprised that barely anyone had talked about it. Yeah. It seems like it would be, uh, like, on everybody's recommended game podcast list, because it's very good. And it's ground that's being covered by nobody else. Ground that's being covered by nobody else. Specifically, not straight dude hosting it. Uh, focusing on a very specific element and being really in-depth. And, yeah, I, I don't know. And also not, like... It's because it's contemporary composers. It's not like straight up chip tunes. It's a lot of people doing like uh, orchestrated stuff. Like even the stuff that sometimes we or I specifically bang on about being the video game music. I don't like. It's interesting to listen to them talk about it because it's clearly got a lot of thought put behind it. And it, you know, it's good work even if I want my bleeps and bloops. Well, to uh, go on a little tangent about that for a second, I feel like composers. Whoever they are, they're always going to be super smart about music, and in films and games, I feel soundtracks have been getting worse, but it hasn't been the fault of anyone actually writing them. Yeah, uh, it's, that's fair. It's just being utilized in very, you know, not very good ways. Themes don't exist anymore in films and games to any extent, whereas themes were... Bring themes back, please! It's my, it's my yep. plea. Uh, no, it's not going to happen. Sorry. I'm very sad about it. Yep. Might I interest you in some RPGs? <laughs> you you may. Those are kind of the only games that have themes, I feel like, anymore. Oh, what about Final Fantasy VIII? Are there themes? Yeah. Good. Kind of. Great. Let me go there, then. There's a victory theme. There's a chocobo theme. Does the victory... Th- I guess, like, they really don't... I don't think Final Fantasy really does, like, leap motif in the way that you're talking about. You're right. Seven did, but I don't. I don't feel like eight does in the same way. I don't even know if seven. Seven did. was rife. With, no, every time the Turks come in, the Turk theme plays. Every time you have like a melancholy scene, you get like the melancholy music. Sure, but when you talk about leitmotif, I assume like a repeated bit of music that is brought in different contexts or different pieces. Whereas seven just plays the song for the thing. No, I mean that's what leitmotif is. Like you, characters or emotions are associated with musical cues that come in when those characters are emotions. No, but I associate leitmotif as an idea as those being woven in throughout the music, rather than okay, play the Turks track now. Um, yeah, but you, when you're operating on like the demands oh, of it's... hardware from the era where you have to load up another CD track, like it makes sense that it's like that. I didn't say it was a, a bad thing. I just think it's a difference in approach, and it's one brought about by the limits of what they could do for sure. Yeah. Um, you want that, you want, uh, Wind Waker that does all, like, it'll just be normal music, and then as you, like, approach enemies, the battle score, like, fades up what? out of the normal music. Oh, yeah. I do want to play with, I'm gonna, I might start Ocarina of Time next week. I think Ocarina of Time does, a, like, a rudimentary version of this. Well, but... Those are the three Zelda games I want to play, and I know my friends let me borrow Ocarina of Time because I can't afford to buy three 3DS games. That's ridiculous. Uh, yep. and then I'll play the Zelda games. I'm very excited. Yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. So those are our things. We'll have more coming up because we got a couple that we uh have that we want to put in, but we're we're not going to do them today. Mm-hmm. We weirdly go. I feel like our vetting process to put stuff on our reading list after a couple of them were removed without much ceremony has gone up. At least on my end, I feel like I think about it way too much about whether or not I want to let something on. I I don't think that's invalid. 
No, I probably worry about it more than it should because no one's going to read it. But I want it to represent like our actual uh, sensibilities. Because mm-hmm. there's there's a difference between something I want to listen to and something I want to be representative of our whole what we like in. Oh yeah, I listen and read to a lot of game stuff that would never make it onto the reading list. Nope, but you don't listen to the Bumcast anymore. You are free. I cut it out of my life. How it's nice. how good do you feel? <sighs> Sometimes I miss it a little, but I what I miss isn't what the Bombcast no, is anymore. You can still go back and listen to an old Bombcast if you want to feel young. Yep. Like, I miss Ryan, I miss Patrick, but Patrick's got his, like, question and answer cast now. Mm-hmm. I miss Alex, but, you know, I miss Bombing in the AM way more than I miss the Bombcast. For real. And if that, if that was still a podcast that existed, I'd still listen to yeah. it, but it doesn't. Nope. Today's uh, second segment, we are going to be talking about video game spaces and spatial exploration and the way games portray spaces. And you mean like EVE Online? <sighs> yes, <laughs> technically I guess. That is, a lar- <laughs> that is a large space, perhaps the largest space, also known as space. <laughs> you said space exploration. Yeah, we're talking about free space. We're talking about the X Games, not the X Games for that—that's skateboarding. But the X Games, I've said X Games mm, too much. For X Games, well, I meant specifically X Rebirth, X Two, X Three. All oh, right, are those four X Games? I actually don't know enough about this kind no, of stuff. No, I don't. I don't think. I think four X Games is like Sins of a Solar Empire. Okay. I think that's what four. But that's is. also a big game about space. Neither of us never know anywhere near enough about this to talk about it. So, what we are actually talking about is probably, I don't know, I don't know how we're going to go about it, but just uh, the way games portray our interaction with the spaces around us. Uh, I don't know where we're going to start, we're just going to go into it, it's going to be a very free-flowing conversation. Okay. For me, games as like a spatial exploration thing comes out of something that isn't even games. When I was... You know, maybe like eight, somewhere between eight and ten, and PCs were just becoming a thing. There was like multimedia encyclopedias. Like instead of getting an Encyclopedia Britannica, your school would just get like a CD-ROM that you put in. And one of the things that I always liked about it is that they'd have these really rudimentary, like 3D turnaround models for like here's this like here's the Parthenon. Let's see what it looks like through this dumb render, almost like Google Maps does for everywhere now. But like you know. It was a novelty in 1994 or whatever. Um, and to me, I always wanted, and I still want, and it's one of the things I want most out of something like VR, just a game that would put you in like, like Notre Dame or like, uh, I don't like the Coliseum, just anywhere around the world, like famous architectural spaces and just give you a lovingly detailed version of them to just walk around in. No goals outside of that. But I just want to explore spaces that way. Mm-hmm. And like, um, we'll link the video of the Paris apartment demo. Um, but one of the things that I think high fidelity graphics are actually could be good for is to give you a sense of space for very small locations. It's a thing that PT got really well 
in that outside of being terrifying, like it's just the most lovingly rendered hallway and foyer that I could ever imagine for like a house. And it's beautiful in its like rundown Midwestern shabbiness. Yeah. And the Paris apartment is beautiful in like this high culture, expensive loft kind of way, but also like I just want to I want to live I want to explore those places because that I think is super valuable valuable to me like very small spaces that you can intimately explore even without like an actual plot like back when Gone Home was announced and it was like oh this is just a house that you can rifle through before there was any details of the plot it's like oh that inherently sounds interesting to me because that's the kind of space exploration game that I have always valued mm-hmm. like just walking through a very intimate space and seeing what's there we, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but we played, uh, I think we did actually mention it on another podcast. Can't remember it. But we played that corridor game that mashed up a bunch of corridors from science fiction films. And I don't think we talked about this on a podcast. I'm fairly sure we did. Okay. What was it? It was like, is it actually sci-fi corridor exploration or something? It's, it's, it has a title like that. It was on Warped Door. Uh-huh. I will put, I will link it in the, the post if you want to, okay. if you want to play it. But what it is, is it just puts, Corridors and science fiction films mashes them up and lets you walk through them. There's no goal other than exist in this space. And it's not like super high detail or well, like expensive because it's just one guy made this. But And some of them are actually really bad red editions <laughs> of the corridors. Yeah. And some of them you have to like work out, wait, is this, I think this is TNG, but I, what? I'm very confused. But then other ones you like turn the corner and it's like, oh, it's the 2001 airlock. Oh my God. Yep. And the feeling of being in the space that you're in is this really powerful thing. And having that be a goal and reward in and of itself as something to do and what games can be is something I think is very valuable. Mm -hmm. I'm pro that happening more with both real spaces and uh, non-existent ones like random corridors from sci-fi movies. Mm -hmm. How... I don't know how it worked, but what... I don't know if it was this. But what the hell was that Louvre game? That Louvre oh, 3DS yes. thing. So you want to talk about... The official name is Nintendo 3DS Guide Louvre. Uh, with a colon after guide, obviously. Um, this is a... In, like, infotainment piece of software that Nintendo made in conjunction with the Louvre in Paris... Um, that is essentially, and they did this with the DS somewhat. They just didn't package it up this nice. Um, there's essentially like their audio tour guide, but on a 3DS cart. And you'd essentially like rent 3DSs that the museum owns to go on your, and give you like the audio behind these pieces as you walk through the various facilities. And like you take the sculpture path and you take the Renaissance art path and they're the actual passing museum and they have the associated information and the paths on the screen, like just a map, like you get in a, in a Zelda game, like walk to here and then turn left at this corridor and go up the stairs to the next thing. Um, and it gives you, uh, photographs of, uh, like, all of the paintings and, uh, history lessons on most of them, both in text and the tour guide and sometimes the curators talking about them. Um, and for, like, the big sculptures, like the Sphinx or the Venus de Milo, there's, like, 3D spin around models of them as well. Yeah. While you're just walking through this kind of rudimentary, cause it's on a 3DS rendition of the Louvre, but it's such like a sense of place because it's like, oh, the map here shows that off to the left there's bathrooms and off of this JPEG that someone turned out of a photograph that they took, I can see there's the bathrooms. 
Um, and I don't know, there's, there's something kind of ramshackle about it, but in very much in the sense of like those nineties CD-ROM encyclopedia things, it's just also a thing you can buy on the eShop and put on your 3DS. I didn't, luckily didn't you... had a, I had a friend who goes <laughs> to Paris every couple years and I gave her money. I'm like, you need to find me a copy <laughs> of this cart because they only sell it in the like Louvre gift shop. Like you can't buy it online or anything. You, know, you can get a digital copy and at all anytime you want, but I wanted a physical one. And so she got me one and it is uh, by default the rarest 3DS cart, but I own a copy. It's great. It's, the, it's kind of a dumb thing to own, but I'm very proud to have it. Yeah. That's, that sounds cool. I wish it was more stuff like that. So do I. Like, I know the DS used to have, like, like, especially using the download, like, Wi-Fi, like, local area stuff where you could do download play. Like, they'd build, I think, the, whatever Seattle baseball team Nintendo owns, the Mariners, something like that. Um, you could, you could download, like, scorecards and stats and stuff through your DS while you were there. Um, there was just like a local thing that wouldn't be saved to your cart. And I think they've done like Tokyo, like subway map carts and stuff mm-hmm. for the original DS. So th- there's a firm tradition of them doing like information games, I guess, like applications through DS as a thing. And I, it's a really great format for it, clearly. Like it means less in the age of smartphones, but you know, the original DS came out before smartphones had it big, especially in Japan. Mm-hmm. Even here, like DS came out in 2004, so. Yeah, that was a while before. Smartphones. iPhone wasn't out yet. Nope, three years away. But, uh, you know, for me, uh, spatial exploration is a thing I've always loved. It, like, part of it, like, my love of mist also comes out of that Encyclopedia Britannica sort of thing, where it is, like, mist is a game that's built out of just clicking static images of a space to try to explore it. And that's, like, there's puzzles, and some of the puzzles are obtuse and annoying, but, Part of it is just being plopped into this very small island that feels expansive because you had not explored games through the graphics of that time um, that look like that. But it's so to me, space exploration has always been about intimate spaces. Yes, like you can make a big giant GTA Four world, and that's interesting. Uh, it's kind of like it's fun to drive around in for a while, but deep down, the ones that really resonate with me are like lovingly crafted, incredibly small spaces. Like even even the stuff that we I mean, like we talked about final. I can I can talk about large worlds that are you interacting with them is interesting and powerful, but I don't think GTA Four is one of them. I think that wants to be an intimate world. It just happens to be massive. Sure, but like I don't think, but like a sense of place can be massive. Like there are parts of GTA Four if you play that game where you you get a sense of the space, and I think knowledge of the space that you're in is kind of the key to good spatial exploration. Yes. Like, you have to feel it instinctively. Like, when you get to the point where, like, you've played Parad- uh, Burnout Paradise that, enough that you know the streets. That's the game I was going to bring up as a game that does Okay. Because of course it was! Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of large-scale city space, Burnout Paradise. I know... I, I can tell just by the way... Partially because I've played it a lot, and partially because it's really well designed. I can tell as I move through that space how I'm going to have to adjust my speed, how frequent the corners are, how the density of traffic changes as you go f- from the highlands to the inner city areas. Mm-hmm. And obviously I learned that, but it makes very clear which areas is which area, and the sense that you get of moving through a large city that you're also familiar with, I don't think many games capture it as well as Burnout Paradise does. 
No, because moving on those streets is what the game is about. Yes. Cause it, yeah. Whereas like GTA, like as much as I enjoy the part of the game where you're moving through the spaces, in actuality you're moving through the spaces just to get to the next cutscene mm-hmm. and spot where you shoot a bunch of guys. Yep. Um, so yeah, for me it is always small games. Like I, as much as I enjoyed Sleeping Dogs, like, and I feel intimate about the starting area of that map, there's like three main areas and I don't feel anything about the other two areas. Well no, cause the other two areas are just areas and they have Different characteristics, yep. but there's nothing, nothing in that game ever comes close to that one mission where you walk through the alleyway market. Yeah. Yep. And you get a sense of place and the relationships between the people and the where you fit into this dynamic. Like nothing mm-hmm. comes close to that. It's just a one time thing. And this is, um, for me, this is a thing we'll talk about next month with our next month's game club yes. game. A little tease there, but, Ooh. um, a game in which you're exploring like spaces over and over and like move through them actually very slowly is valid is more important to me. Like we'll talk about this with Yakuza also, but, um, and also the market scene that we're talking about in sleeping dogs, but something like the original resident evil where you are cl- slowly crawling through this mansion that you'll like go down some hallways like three dozen times in the course of the game. And every time it's like a weird, because of the way the controls are like it's tank controls and it can take some getting used to like, at first you feel disoriented moving through those spaces and as you play the game you get more and more sure about moving through them and they just become like walking down your own hallway like you don't think about walking down a hallway in your house um but you'll think about walking down the hallway in a house you've never been in before you're like oh here's the door to the left and what's in here and here's the door at the end what's in there and the point where you become where it becomes second nature and you almost start taking that space for granted is a, a really rare thing for games, I think. Because games are constantly trying to feed you novelty in your spaces. Yeah. Like, that's why games like Call of Duty and, like, Final Fantasy XIII exist. They're corridors that funnel you constantly to new content. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, it's the repetition of content that feels more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, even in a big game. Like, something like... I mean, we'll talk... Like, we talked about Final Fantasy VII... Uh, about this in Final Fantasy VII, but when you go back to spaces again, like when you go back to Nibelheim or you go back to, uh, Midgar at the very end of the game, like you feel a sense of affection for that space. Like you're like, oh, I've been here before and it's important that I'm back. It feels different now, Ooh. even though it's the same spaces. Uh, one I'd go to because, because it's their design is Mass Effect, which I ran down a thousand different, like every level of that game, I'd have no familiarity or affection towards whatsoever because they're just designed as corridors to run down. They have no personality. But the mm-hmm. recurring areas, the towns, like basically the Citadel and the Normandy and to a lesser extent Omega in Mass Effect 3, uh, Mass Effect 2, mm-hmm. you get yeah. a sense of like what that place is and how you fit into it as you go down. Like, it's, I know everyone hates Mass Effect, uh, one's citadel area how long it takes to run around but what are you talking about it's the best part no, of the game no I mean in terms of like the elevators the fact that they're everywhere is way too far from each other but that's what like you run down that corridor about seven times in the course of that first few hours of the game and yeah. you know where it is and they changed the citadel in two into just like a shopping center with four floors oh it was so sad it was so sad oh it's just a complete misunderstanding of what makes a space valuable and the things we take for granted like of course you're going to get pissed off at the corridor that's too long. I got pissed off when I had to walk down my road uh, at university because it was so far away from the high street. But that feeling of, uh, I don't like this thing about my space, is kind of what makes it yours. 
because you can't change mm-hmm. it. It's accepting the realities of it and learning that, oh, if I go this way, I'll shave off two seconds of my time. If I go this way, I can get to that place quicker. That is what learning to be in a space is. And by shaving mm-hmm. the rough edges uh, and like usability difficulties off every space we create, we lose that. And I think that's uh, horribly short-sighted. Yeah. And even big games can create the space. Like you think of, you look at something like Skyrim, mm-hmm. which is a massive world in which it's like impossible to know everything. But like if you're playing the main game or you go kind of off on your, like if you play the main thrust of the game, you're probably going to settle in Whiterun for the beginning 10 hours of the game or whatever. And you're going to know Whiterun like intimately. Like you know how to get up to the Earl's like chambers by making shortcuts like behind houses and up through alleyways and jumping up like the water drains and you can take the roads and you know where the roads lead and you know the shops off the roads but you can just buzz through it and it's this one space of familiarity that's like this microcosm of the entire world that you don't know Mm -hmm. but you know that because this small place that you're very familiar with has all these different back alleys and interesting ways that the larger world probably also reflects that and it does but that part feels unknowable and like vast because this one space is so known mm-hmm. and it's such like a small town in the middle of like this empty field with like mountains surrounding it. Yeah. And that juxtaposition like creates this sense of familiarity and creates this fondness for that space. Like anytime you're in your home city, whatever city that is in that game, you feel like you're home. And every time you're away, you're like, I need to gear up to go out. Yeah. Uh, and that's similar to how we felt playing Minecraft, which is a game yeah. that gives you that has no bias towards its spaces. Everything is created randomly. Everything just exists. no. The home, the home is where you but put you, it. Once you make a home and you decide this is where I'm coming back to, your world is like that is the fulcrum around which your world turns, and you mm-hmm. become familiar. You become familiar with like just rent like that's the tree that I the tree next to the block next to the lava is that I know where the pigs are, and then that's just two minutes across from home. Yeah. And, oh, Minecraft continues to be the best game. I mean, game. that's what, that's what people are. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how human beings work. Yeah. Like, from the point where we were monkeys coming out of trees, like, this is our tree. We know this tree. <laughs> this is our tree. We know this tree. It's true. It though. is true. You're right. You are right. I agree. I want to ask you another, switch across and ask me another question. Sure. What do you think about how Twine games represent space? Specifically games that, or just text games, games that don't take place within a space, but so being evocative I wanna, of it. I think it, I think it really behooves me, and I think it's important to this discussion to say, I have zero experience with interactive fiction. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know, it, like, graphic adventure games, and I understand those, even though I came to them really late, but I have a very hard time wrapping my head around interactive fiction outside of games like 80 Days, which are incredibly, like, those are the most, like twine adventure games where you're given a set of prompts and get to choose them. Like 80 days could be a telltale game if you put a graphical layer over it. Mm-hmm. But, um, so those, I don't think they really count, even though they'd probably be considered inter- interactive fiction for me. Uh, like the default is like a, a, a text parser and like a sense of space exploration. Um, are inherent to interactive fiction. Part of it's just Zork, like, you know, houses North go North and, the twine games that replicate that in like exploring a space, I find incredibly difficult to connect with. Okay. Because I, like I read a lot of fiction and I appreciate space as it's presented in fiction. But if you read enough fiction, you realize that spaces are actually like given shape in fiction almost entirely through like 
in like incredible sketchiness. Like they just say, this is a house. It was cold and dark and inside all the furniture was old and they let you fill in all the spaces like fiction relies upon the reader contributing baggage to give spaces shape because books unless you're reading thomas hardy or some nonsense are not going to fill pages and pages of like intricate description of spaces but when you're creating an interactive fiction influenced twine game or even interactive fiction itself i think it starts, be, the tendency starts to lean towards giving you rich details of those spaces because picking through those details through text is what the point. And I find that really hard to like project myself into and engage with and feel anything about. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Like when you, when you compare a, a interactive fiction or a twine game that's influenced by that with something like a, like even a, like the most simple room escape game where it's like someone MS painted like some drawers and a closed door and a plant that you move to get a key or whatever. Like that to me suggests more about space that I can imprint myself on and feel something about than reams and reams of even well-made text about going through a house and like the feelings associated with it or the sensory experiences. Like it's just too much information for me. Like, I want to be able, like, especially with text, to to let myself fill in the spaces. And I think it has entirely everything to do with how I engage with books and how I engage with games like different mediums. And some people find those two living closer together than others. I just don't. I'm just not that person. Mm-hmm. I- so, yeah, I don't, I don't like Twine games like that. I think it's a bad form for Twine, but clearly, like, people enjoy it, so I'm wrong. Well, that's fine. I don't know if this counts as one of them, uh, but one of the like best forms of spatial exploration was the Twine game "Your Actions Do Not Affect the Ending" by Jazzcat. Which I don't think I've played that. I wrote about it. No, I don't think you have either. But what it is, it's time passes, and you're in a house, and basically mm-hmm. it's for every half an hour, you can choose what room to be in, and. Like you choose what room to be in, then it'll say what room are you in for the next half an hour. And it, all it is is for each room you go in, it is a short explanation of the space. It's it's really terse. Everything is very terse in this game. Uh, that's mostly about the weird, extraneous details within it, rather than the general like picture of the space. Like it's all it'll say in your mum's bedroom. Your mum's dresser is packed, but you're, you're like this thing is packed, but this thing is like slightly off. It's way more about the things that are off kilter in the space rather than actually trying to give you a detailed picture of what the space looks like visually. Sure, but you're you're suggesting a tone piece, and I think. When I think of spatial exploration twines, I think of, and there are games that are like this, that are like, essentially like, Shadowgate style dungeon crawls in twine, where it's like, you go left and you pick up the key, and then you go right and you find the door, and you unlock the door with the key, and then you go down the hallway and it branches into three paths. Like, that stuff is made in twine, and I hate it. I hate it so much. I don't like- I think okay. it's a, I think it's a misuse of the form. I don't like that either, but I, I understand why people would. Cause that's, that's, yeah, and that's what I was, that's what I was talking about. Like, I think it comes out of me not understanding or feeling or even like, I'll admit, like, I don't even like respect very much like the interactive fiction tradition, even though I know there are people who do. And my feelings are like weirdly judgmental based on very limited exposure. Mm-hmm. This game that I'm talking about specifically, I just want to go back to it and highlight yeah. what it does. Well, it's as time passes, like you, your parents are breaking up and. Uh-huh. There is a story that plays out, but you don't know what room the story is going to occur in as you 
go through the day so you might only catch bits of it but the feeling of something being off permeates through every single um thing you do every single room you're in and it uh-huh. has it like as someone whose uh, dad left when i was like eight it brought back that exact feeling of weird powerlessness and this re- yearning for the Obvi- the tangible, understandable, and realness of spaces when your unknowable relationships between people are in such chaos and you're too young to understand why. Mm-hmm. And that's what that game does uh, so well, and I want to quickly plug that. But that does it through text. I don't think... I, that, I understand that, your point better now, because I don't think you're saying text can't create space well. I'm saying no. you're saying you just don't connect with a certain genre. But when you when you describe that game, it sounds almost like something like uh, like a more limited version of something like Ultra Business Tycoon Three, yes. which gives you text through space exploration, even though there's no wrong answer. But the other thing it made me think of was Sleep No More, mm-hmm. like that art installation of uh, it's uh, Hamlet, right? I think so. Um, where it's like they make they put an entire building. It's I think it's in New York, right? Yep. Um, and you go in and. You, you everyone wears masks who's like just a viewer and it's just this building full of these actors putting on hamlet but like spread out through this space and you're just allowed to freely walk through it and like the main thrust of the plot is happening in a certain place but other people are doing things in other rooms and it's giving you more story and it's like this radical interpretation of a narrative spread out through space but in which you can just choose not to engage with that space you can just go into a room where nothing really is happening and see what's going on there mm-hmm. and that's what that game sounds like to me a lot yeah it's very much that because it's specifically about the relationship between space and time and you can't know everything uh, but mm. whichever choice you do make is equally valid and allows you to progress mm-hmm. through the day and have your own but interpretation of it i think that's like one of the things that i really like when i think of games that use space well i think of games that give you spaces that aren't for anything and that's a thing I always love. Like games that just give you like these beautiful vistas or these quiet spaces that are kind of off the beaten path where nothing happens. And we're going to go into Yakuza shortly because this segment went on way longer than I thought it was going to. But, um, Yakuza 3 has this right at the beginning where you, like your character's introduced coming out of the beach. Like he's like fishing and he comes out of the water and that beach is there and stuff happens on it. But for the most part, it's just, just off to the side of any time you're in that area. Like, you need to go into the orphanage to get plot, but off to the left is the beach, if you want to go to the beach. And if you go there, it's just this beautiful vista that exists, that you can fish there, but really it exists to just be a beautiful vista that you can explore and, like, go and stand on anytime you want. Mm -hmm. And I love games that give you those spaces, as much as I might, like, dislike, I actually dislike Omega in Mass Effect 2, like, what it represents as a city, like... It just gave you, like, the promenade stuff where you could just stand and look out into Space City and feel it for a moment yeah and that stuff is incredible to me like i love spaces that exist only to suggest a mood and a sense of your place in a space that doesn't really have much to do with you Mm -hmm. and uh that stuff's really beautiful to me um a game that i'm slowly picking my through because it's taking forever is uh um the talus principle which is like this first person puzzly exploration game it's like the puzzles are presented in rooms not entirely unlike portal but instead of just feeding you test chambers, they're like these walled off areas in the middle of various sets of ruins based on the world you're in, whether like Grecian ruins or like, uh, like almost like King Arthur-esque ruins or, uh, Egyptian ruins. 
And so you're just walking through these spaces that exist only to be kind of this hub world, but they are beautiful in and of themselves, just giving you these vistas to like look at while you're playing this very contemplative game anyway. So in between the moments where you're bashing your head against the wall for an hour, because this puzzle won't go, you can just like, here's some trees or here's an obelisk in the middle of like this desert. And you can just sit there and enjoy it and consider it. And it's only there to be that space for contemplation. And I think that's really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I've gone on and on about the jazz punk Zen garden, which exists only as a reprieve from the wackiness of jazz punk as an interlude where you like feed some ducks or you light an incense stick. And it is there only to be a contrast to the games otherwise like packed to the gill zaniness. But in that sense, in that space, because it took the time to carve out that space, it gives you a real sense of like quietness and calm. Mm hmm. Completely the opposite direction from that for my conclusion. I want to quickly mention like Mirror's Edge or like skating games and skating Tony Hawk and everything, which are games that have spaces purely, de- almost entirely defined by your interaction with them. Like, yeah, I would uh, a game that belongs in this conversation and it rarely gets put in there is uh, Super Mario sixty four. Super Mario, uh, yes, yeah, uh, and, and Super Mario Galaxy as well, which I think actually is a fantastic combination of the two. Yeah. Cause I can just sit and let space develop I think, me for hours. I think the fidelity and the guide, like the focusness of the galaxies in Mario Galaxy, um, take away the sense of play that 64 in particular has because it's such rudimentary polygons. They just fill spaces with them and it feels like a, it feels like being a kid on a playground in a way that I don't think Galaxy well, does. Galaxy has a far more directed and melancholy tone that puts mm-hmm. over everything that it is also this place you can just be and feel a thing by being there mm-hmm. uh, yeah which uh mario 64 is more just you yeah, can go through like expansive spaces of play like mirror's edge i think of 64 well, I, I didn't think of mirror's edge ex- expansive i just think of it in terms of uh i, I think mirror's edge is a different one because it has such a striking design but mm. when i think of games about movement through spaces i think of skating games i think of mirror's edge uh, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of cool uh, old games that are doing stuff like this. And, the, oh, Dream dream Sim. That's one of your, uh, that's that's the space that exists that you can't interact with, but I think everyone should go play Dream Sim. I haven't played that either. You should really play Dream Sim. It's just cityscapes, but in this weird dreamlike thing. And you can just move, you just move through them. There's nothing to do but walk through them. Nice. I, lo- I love old games that are like that. And it's it's great. But back to just quickly concluding on games that you move through and spaces that interact with. I think that's valuable as well because Tony Hawk games specifically, I think Skate gets a little more away from this and Mirror's Edge definitely does, but they're often really ugly. There's nothing about being in that world that gives you any sense of space. It is only through the way this rail matches up with this ledge, which matches up with uh, this half pipe, that you get a feeling for the space. And that I don't want to see those go away. There's less of those now because skating games were a thing, but I think that's so important. And it's the thing I'm most nostalgic for about Tony Hawk's. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. I think of it, the thing that makes me think of is actually uh, Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, mm-hmm. as a playground that gives you, like, it feeds you a linear string of things to crawl on and jump through that are clearly designed to feel, to be like a one-to-one, like you go from A to B to C, but they just line up so perfectly that it gives you the sense of satisfaction that this place exists to give you a perfect run through jumping and climbing over stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's a really powerful thing. This, 
like it's clearly more false than like a big city that you can climb over anything, but I don't need that because that's actually boring. Mm-hmm. Like I'd take I'd take Prince of Persia over Assassin's Creed any day. Yeah. I I would agree. I would agree. Uh th- though I would say Assassin's Creed 1 has the best sense of place out of any Assassin's Creed game. This is my controversial opinion. That's interesting because I totally disagree. But sure. Which one do you say? Two? Two. One, they, they change, they change the camera in two and they, every decision they make makes you feel more disconnected and makes it more like a video game. Whereas when I run through a town in Assassin's Creed 1, I feel like I'm running through a town. Mm. That's my, that's my argument there. But that's, okay. Anyway, this conversation has gone on forever, but I think it was a good one. Yeah. As always, I continue to look for games with spaces. Someday we're going to do Attack of the Friday Monsters, which is a game that very much has a real sense of space, presented only through, like, pre-rendered backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Because it's just a small town that you go through over and over again. And shout out to the Persona games, which do this incredibly well. Yep. I'd feel remiss if we didn't talk about them specifically. Which is purely through familiarity with the thing. Like, the environments aren't even that well-designed. No. They're just, you are in the space and it is the same space, so just through being there, of course you build up a relationship with it. Yep, exactly. Game Club this month is one of the games that I wanted to do ever since we started this podcast, which is Yakuza 3, the PlayStation Triple. One of the games that I was most excited to play when you finally got a PS3. Only appropriate they were playing in this the year of the PS3. The year of the PS3, and what better game to showcase the PS3? So Yakuza 3 is the third in the Yakuza series uh, by Sega. Um, released in North America on March 9th, 2010. So we were playing it almost five years to the month. Yeah, almost. Yeah. And uh, the Axis series is kind of the spiritual successor to uh, Shenmue in that you are running around a big open world city doing missions and quests and getting into all sorts of dumb hijinks. All the meanwhile, kung fuing men in the face. That's not true. Actually, you just beat them to death and then curb stomp them. Yeah, there's not much <laughs> kung fu in this game. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't take any martial arts. But this is brawling. So you, these play, guys are brawling. You play as uh, Kazuma Kiryu, who grew up in the yakuza and then was betrayed, and then became the chairman, and then quit, and then was betrayed, and then okay, went no. back in, no, and no, then no, was no, betrayed. No, 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 no. no. All right. <laughs> I'm going to time you 30 seconds. I want you to explain the plot of Yakuza 1 and 2 as best you can in 30 seconds. Okay. Right. 3, 2, 1. 
Go. So Kazuma's dad, foster dad, died, and he took the rap for it and went to jail for ten years. And they came back and like rose through the ranks and found out that like his best friend was also involved in this death, but also like his dad wasn't really dead. And then he killed him. And then the second one, there was like the Chinese showed up, and then you fought a bunch of the Chinese, and you worked with the lady cop, and it was Yakuza and cop together, star-crossed lovers, blah blah blah. And then you became leader again, and then you quit again because he wants to just live a life alone from crime. Done. 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 Yeah. Nice. That was that was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> so Yakuza 3 opens with a main menu screen that gives you video about probably like a half hour uh, summary of both Yakuza and Yakuza 2. That if you're going to play this game, highly suggest you watch because you will be lost completely otherwise. You're going to be lost a little bit anyway. And I assume you would be lost even if you had played both two games. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it opens, bit. it opens in media res like a lot, like heavily, of course, but mm-hmm. in terms of like the names that, like there's a lot of people at the beginning of that game. And there's a lot of people in the beginning. I played the beginning of the first game mm-hmm. just to remind myself, just to check how like the series started, then I skipped to three. Uh, heavy with the names always. Gotta know every family, gotta know the lieutenant of every family, gotta know, uh, who's like fighting for who and then who's eventually gonna betray you later. They lay down every piece in the first five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then just start moving them for a whole game. Yep. And, uh, yeah, there, this game was, has always been kind of sold in America, especially like the PS2 ones that had like an all-star American voice cast as kind of GTA-esque, which is hilarious to me because the only correlations are that they take place in a city and involve crime. In actuality, Yakuza 3 and all the Yakuza games are JRPGs that kind of have a small open world component, and instead of turn-based battles, you just have beat them up. I would actually describe Yakuza as the perfect execution of all the things GTA advertises itself and like aspires to be. Sure, but like gameplay-wise, they're nothing alike. They're nothing alike, but in terms of what GTA presents as, Yakuza actually is that. Yep. So by which I mean really intimately crafted crafted world and an epic crime story that's actually good. So by the beginning of Yakuza 3, Kazuma Kiryu and his adopted daughter Haruka have decided that crime is not for them and Yakuza's running an orphanage in Okinawa. He's got like nine kids between the ages of like like 8 and 12, I think he says, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Haruka's 13 or 14 and she's like she's basically like in charge of the kids when you're not around. Yep. Because Japan and children. I don't understand. I feel like someone should call the cops on this whole organization. But <laughs> I don't know how he runs it. Because <laughs> she like was clearly doing most of the cooking and everything. Mm-hmm. And doing all the business. I don't know what he does. He catches fish. He catches fish. He provides he do- moral lessons. How does he earn money? I assume he's just got a bunch of money from crime. Oh, that's right. He would do, wouldn't he? Good point. He he he's the fourth chairman of the uh Tojo clan. He is the fourth chairman and everyone it refers to him as such. Yeah. Which is which is great. Yeah, no. He ah oh, the opening of this game <laughs> is amazing because uh, we'll talk about the actual plot in a minute, but whatever. A bunch of plot stuff happens and then they forget about it for about 3-4 hours. Yeah. As you just run around being, like, orphanage dad. 
Yeah. You're just helping the kids out with either being bullied at school or playing games with them or like one of them wants to go on a date and you're trying to figure that out. Like in the periphery of you and some ne'er-do-well local Yakuza like trying to get together and prevent like the problems that are actually encroaching on your world. Mm-hmm. It's just let's take a break and pick out what dumb shirt we want to put this kid in so we can get win the affections of this girl. Guess what? Asking forty year old Yakuza men what shirt to wear is a bad idea. <laughs> no, it's a great idea. It's a bad idea. <laughs> so fucking bad. Which shirt did you choose? The American Polo. <laughs> I chose. I just chose dressed him up like a mini Yakuza. It's just a. It's just an American flag shirt and some sunglasses. <laughs> I also chose the sunglasses. Those sunglasses are amazing. Yeah. But, like, should not exist outside of, like, 1987. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, what a ridiculous thing. The best thing about this is that... So, the series is clearly this uh, big crime thing with, like, story continuity and everything. But take for... It was a similar thing in the setup. I, I guess Uncharted, but not really. But and anything where... Game will end where the character is at a point where they're good, and then they have to be back back in like an unreserved place and go back and do the thing they just got out of. Uh, like standard action movie tropes, they drag me back in, blah blah blah, what have you. But the way Yakuza commits to getting Kiryu involved with Yakuza business again is astounding because it takes hours. It's really slow because. It's, you're just out and about, and then you notice, like, some local Yakuza who are way lesser than your Yakuza, because you're from Tokyo, and they're just, like, low-life Okinawa Yakuza, are, like, <laughs> hanging around outside your orphanage, and you decide to go intimidate them, because your only two modes are moralizing, or three modes are moralizing, beating dudes up, and intimidating, by just being a head taller and a person thicker than every other person <laughs> in the world. <laughs> When you run around the open world, you are literally a head taller than every single NPC. Yeah, you're just a huge, giant monster of a man, full you of just... wisdom and love. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. But in, in any other game or story, this orphanage would be knocked down within the first two hours, and you'd be back in in uh, the city to get revenge. Yep. But that... no, the, the actual best part is when you track down the Yakuza who you think are like threatening you, like they are. But the minute you sit down and talk with them, suddenly you guys are like fast friends. And you're mm-hmm. just sipping sake with the leader of this town, and you're, like, blood brothers now, and <laughs> their lieutenant is now just your, like, bumbling sidekick friend, Rikia, and you're just going around being bros. Uh, Ricky, I'm gonna go write my Rikia Kazuma slash fic right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're the best. It's canon. They went to a love hotel together. They did, and I... R- Rikio I was about- <laughs> clinging to y- his, his Kazuma's arm like crazy. <laughs> the scene of the lift, and it's like about five seconds grabbing onto his arm and leaning on his shoulder. Yep. Who wouldn't want to lean on Kazuma's shoulders? I would lean on Kazuma's shoulders. I would lean on Kazuma's shoulders. Yep. Uh, so we should probably actually summarize this game like, in terms of its setup. Because- so you're running the orphanage, but it turns out that the orphanage is on land that is part of this resort deal that the one of the ministers of the diet is trying to get pushed through because they want to build an American military base and they need to have the resort put there also with the base because otherwise people will hate the base enough that it won't pass. So to get the base pass, they need the resort. So they need the land that you're on. And to do that, they decide to contact local Yakuza to buy up all the land from people who were not selling originally. 
And one of those is your orphanage and you have more clout over the local Yakuza, but that just escalates the problem to like bigger and more aggressive Yakuza clans who are going to try to get your mon- your land by hook or by crook. And that includes your old clan because they've been thrown into disarray because a mysterious figure who looks just like the father, the foster father that you killed in the first game showed up and shot the guy you put in charge when you left to go around the orphanage. Well, I, I think it's important to note that what actually happens is the first part of that story takes place at one point and then there's a big year gap. So you find out what's going on. Yeah. And uh, you basically talk to like you have sake with the Yakuza heads of the Okinawa and Tokyo clans and one of the like junior ministers who's trying to get this bill pushed. And you're like, look, we live here. We're fine. We're happy. You can fulfill your dream in 20 years when you're in charge of the country for now. Just like, let it go. And it's like the, the most, that's like not a thing that would be in like Western politics to me. Like this idea of, we understand this is your legacy. We don't want to let you have this land. But in reality, in 20 years, you're going to probably be higher up and we'll be dead or gone and these kids will be gone and then you can do it. Just wait. Yeah. Like, like so much of this game presents itself as the, like what it means to, like what traditionalism can be is like a good familiar thing that like supports people and communities. Because Kazuma and the Yakuza in general, like, the ones who aren't scumbags, like, especially, like, the higher-ups that you know, are all, like, these traditionalists that believe in, like, this I- these ideas of family and community and, like, uplifting, like, all of the forces, like, around them. Like, even, like, the communities that aren't, like, normally part of the Yakuza. And, like, if you take a broader step back, it's, like, this weirdly problematic thing, especially when you realize that, like... What is actually being advocated, even though the game isn't really about that, is the Yakuza were, like, especially in the modern era, like, this super xenophobic crime force that's all about, like, only Japanese people are people who are valuable to society and this community uplift will come with, like, a certain amount of exclusionariness and racism and whatever, on and on and on. Mm-hmm. But in the game, it, it is, like, this idealized version of, like, the perfect world where the Yakuza are actually... Like these bastions of integrity, like it's the the good yakuza anyway. The bad ones are just scumbag criminals, but the good ones are like these men from a cloth that doesn't is not cut from anymore, and they are paragons of virtue, and mm-hmm. they sit down and talk about great things in good ways over and over again, and they're like yeah. generous and nice and yeah, it's weird. It's it's like a complex thing. In like this, like this very reductive, yeah, it's like this really reductive morality play, but it totally works. It's ridiculous that a game about a Japanese crime organization is the closest thing to Star Trek that games have. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But it's also like, it is just straight up riffing on like beat Takeshi films from like, like if you look at like Hanabi or like Sonatine or any of those Yakuza films, it is just this turned into a video Mm -hmm. game. I want to quickly talk about how this game writes its dialogue and, like, composes its cutscenes. Sure. Because they are incredibly dry, incredibly long, and incredibly wordy. Mm-hmm. So, they, sh- they, all the things you are meant to not do to make good cinema, but the way they, like, understand nuances of how to write well, the, not the nuances, the fundamentals of how to get you to care about a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, and how to frame shots that keeps them interesting, even if it's just people, static people talking, mm-hmm. I think is incredibly valuable, and a lot of 
games should look to Yakuza for how to translate cinematic language into games in an well, yeah. affordable, achievable way. Like, there, there's multiple things that work here. Like, the game is not, like, super photorealistic, but they did, like, scanning of actors' faces, and the animation is, like, really good at emoting. Like, the character mm-hmm. faces emote really well. Um, and so that works. You're given characters that are very clearly set up with, like, really defined motivations and where they're coming from. Yeah. And so your scenes are just characters that you know who they are and where they're coming from, even if you've just met them, talking about a point of conflict, and they just address the point of conflict and all the things surrounding it. Like, it's super straightforward. In that, like, I was watching that one scene specifically where they're drinking sake and just talking about the development for about 10, 15 minutes. Like, it goes on. Yeah. But every... Every like the guy comes in, gives everyone comes in, gives their short monologue about where they come from, and then every single line, like directly challenges their assumptions, Mm -hmm. and then it's just this like it's very educational on how to create dialogue and how to create conflict and question and answer between in a simple conversation, and everything ties into everyone's viewpoint, everyone's motivations clash. And each line ties onto the next in this really effective way that proves that you can have long conversations about Landy for five minutes. You just have to know the actual drama at play there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Oh, I was really impressed. Big fan. Big yeah. f- I could have watched them talk about that nonsense and they, years. They also pick their spots really well in terms of when you're going to use a cutscene with voice dialogue. The mm-hmm. game is very happy to give you like an opening and a closer that are like maybe two minutes of voice dialogue and then give you five or ten minutes in between that is just the characters sitting and animating but giving you just text boxes. Yep. Because they know that like they can't sustain it. It's faster for you to read if they just do text boxes. It's cheaper for them to just do text boxes. And it delivers the information just as well as long as they set it up right. Mm-hmm. Like, and going through the main game, like, all of the side quests are just presented through text boxes. But because they've done the work to set up the character, you don't need full voice acting to understand that Kazuma is, like, deadpanning these absolutely ridiculous situations he <laughs> finds himself in at all times. All you need is him coming out of the water with that fish and then just looking at uh, Haruka like, hello. Mm-hmm. And you understand his entire deal for the rest of the game. Yep. Yeah. So when, like, some producer, like, is like, pulls you off the street, he's like, you're a big guy. We, we lost our star. He's sick. Come be in this samurai movie. Learn these lines. And then you go beat these guys up and you're in this movie and they're like, maybe we should hire him to be in the next one. And like, as you're getting dressed, you take off your kimono and you're covered in the tattoos and the film crew freaks out because they realize they just hired a Yakuza. <laughs> yep. Yeah, like, it's just the most ridiculous thing. And then Kazuma doesn't care because he is the most Unfazed blase. by all things. Yeah, so he's just like, oh, no, I wouldn't be interested in being in a movie and walks out as everyone's, like, bowing in fear of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Multiple times, like, generally someone, especially in the side quest, someone is running some kind of small-time criminal thing, and then Kazuma comes in, busted up, but their reaction is one of, like, fear and respect, and he just gives them a lot of this lesson on life wisdom and walks off. Yep. After he punches them all in the face. Oh, he punches them all in the face, but then they're, like, really thankful for him for punching them in the face, and mm-hmm. they're gonna live their life on the straight and narrow from now on. Or, you just get in the weird situations where there's that, that guy who's, like, trying to jump in the river, you're like, hey, 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 buddy, come down, let's talk about this. And he's like, I'm so much in debt. You're like, well, look, I understand I used to be a loan shark, you need to go to a lawyer and see about filing bankruptcy, like, that's important. 
And so you talk to him and it's the end of the quest. And then you come back later and he's still on there. And he's like, the lawyer says he won't like, I can't actually qualify for bankruptcy. So I'm going to kill myself. I took out life insurance and that, then I'm going to make the money back that way and like take care of my family. He's like, no, you don't understand. If you kill yourself, life insurance isn't going to cover that. You need to make sure that if you're going to do this, the clause covers it, but actually don't kill yourself because that's a bad thing to do. So Cosmo's just talking this guy down off the ledge and like giving him financial advice on how to pay back loan sharks. <laughs> That was such a good moment. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because he is a ridiculous human, but like he's ve- he's very earnest about it. He's like very forthright, and the game is so much about him being this like emotionally connected like vision of masculinity. Well, it's a thing that we both really like attach to. Yeah, that's the thing is that unlike the power fantasy, which like this kind of is, it takes. Kazuma's uh, complete masculine superiority over everyone as writ and becomes like a fable on what you're meant to do with that. Mm-hmm. Because, because the, ac- the actuality to, yeah. is like all the all the bad characters, are the characters that are overbearing and swaggering and presumptive with their masculinity. Like mm-hmm. they're always characters who are like gross or like leery or exploitative or abusive. And he is a character that has a lot of the same traits. Like he's really strong and he, he has all this power, but he's quiet and he's humble and he's emotional and he cares for people and that's those are the things that are depicted as like these like macho traits that you should invest in Mm -hmm. like one of my favorite things in the game that we've talked about at length is you can go on dates and the dates are whatever they're like totally throwaway but you can take your date to karaoke (laughs) and she'll sing whatever and you'll like be the cheerleader you like clap or do a tambourine or like shout like the chorus at her like the call and response segments you'll like sing along but yeah. the only song Cosmo will sing is Kamurocho Lullaby, which is this ridiculous Enka song that will be closing out the show because it's the best song. Yes. And it's just this ballad to like the place where he grew up. Like you go to Kamurocho, it's a song about the place that's been connected to the series. And it's just like this like heartfelt song about what it like what it represents because it's like this red light district but he's really romantic about it because it's his home and it's what he knows and it represents this like vision of japan that doesn't exist anymore and he just pours his heart into it and it's the only song that that character will ever sing like even if you go to karaoke by yourself if you pick the other songs the karaoke will just play and he'll just do the clapping he will only sing kamarocha lullaby and it's the best Mm mm-hmm it's and, so good. And by by not giving you any choice about that, like it just it's so much informs the character. Like this is the only like he knows other songs. This is just the only song that he will deign to sing, because it's the only one that matters. <laughs> yep. It's a really simple and effective way of just saying this is who this guy is, this is what his deal is, and that's how the game characterizes. It's fully a melodrama full, through and through. Everyone has their one specific thing, their one thematic point, and we'll play that out in every single scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And like, it's, it's not a perfect game about this stuff. Like, uh, we were both talking about the weird ways that it portrays race that come out of it being a Japanese game. And I think bear talking about it. Cause I think they're really interesting. There's was, there's two, there's two big scenes, but there's one with the kids. Mm, one of your, one of your kids, like all the kids seem to have some sort of problem. And one of the kids is like big problems is he likes his girl. And it seems like he's get, gets picked on for being a mixed race kid. Uh, and he's like, I don't know. Like he uses it as well, it a point it, of it doesn't even bring that up. But it's like, he wants to go out with this girl and this girl doesn't like him. And then 
this girl has a scar mm-hmm. and she's suddenly bullied for it and then he protects her and then his point says he says like my skin's a different color and people bully me for that that's just like your scar mm-hmm. and you're like what what hang on hmm. but like in hmm. the, I, like so much of it is in the context of this really homogenous culture where like yeah. him having different colored skin is totally on par with her be having a scar in mm-hmm. terms of what it means for them as children being like affected yeah because it's not like he's not not treated like a Japanese kid. He's treated like a Japanese kid with some sort of physical difference that sets him apart. Yeah. Because there is no such thing as like a culture of like biracial people in Okinawa mm-hmm. that matter. And one of the most ridiculous segments, like you fight these like Americans that are like, they look like men in Liquid black. Liquid Snake walks L- in. Liquid Snake and three men in black who know Kung Fu walk in. <laughs> and you have this scene where you're fighting just the whitest guys on the planet and then they retreat. And Cosmo's like, I need to follow them. And he runs out of the alley and they're gone. And he sees a black guy in a suit and he's like, a foreigner. He must be with them. And only in the context of a Japanese game would random black guy and four of the whitest men on earth be seen <laughs> as part of the same social group. Yep. <laughs> It's this, this like, very born out of an insular culture kind yep. of thing. Uh, not not saying ours is better in any way. No, but, but it's it's interesting it, the way it presents itself. It, yeah, like it presents its prejudices in this. The the differences in the way it presents its prejudices are interesting to consider mm-hmm. about how society kind of like forms views on race. Yep, uh, and it just like prove like way of showing race is construct number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my other favorite thing in that game that they do is the uh the other Fuma, like the Fuma who works with the CIA, speaks English in the most like this actor is phonetically sounding English yep. words because he cannot speak mm-hmm. English. But Liquid Snake Guy like, just has just the most guy. trailer voice <laughs> English. He just comes in and goes, What the fuck do you think you're doing? Like at the end of the game. Yeah. And then I can't tell if Kazuma is just like unsure how to respond to him because he's like in this heightened situation or if Cosmo just doesn't understand English well no because at the end of the game he does oh does he because at the end of the game he's him it's him Daigo and Cosmo oh you're right he's talking when English when they're in the hospital it's not clear that Cosmo's understanding what's going on okay oh, yeah, I don't know because Cosmo's response is like a what and you're not sure if it's a what to what the guy's saying or if Cosmo just literally does not understand mm-hmm so quick backup. We should probably explain the plot of the, where this goes. Uh, sure, I guess. Do we can do it quickly. So no, I want to explain it because okay, give me the thirty second <laughs> wrap up. Okay, so the orphanage deal and military base deal was actually a plot to uh, pull out a terrorist organization called Black Monday. Uh, Black Monday. Black Monday, yes. Orchestrated by the defense minister of Japan and the person who's been selling you out is this guy called Mine. Uh, the selling out the Tojo clan has this guy called Mine, who is very similar to Kazuma, but with, he's just Kazuma without em- empathy, essentially. Yeah, he was, uh, li- he's like, he was like the lieutenant, lieutenant. He was like the <laughs> lieutenant left in the Tojo clan after you left. And he, like, where everyone else is, like, super, like, loud and brash, he is, like, the quiet banker or Yakuza type. Yeah, so of course he's the ultimate bad guy. Yeah. But like, like, you meet him in C1 and you're like, well, you know where this is going. Yep. <laughs> uh, and the ending of the game is... Hit- basically, just a long-ass conversation between 
Kazuma and him about his values. Yeah, because Mine was an orphan just like Kazuma, but Kazuma was raised by a Yakuza who was, like, honorable and taught him all these traits that he exhibits now, whereas Mine was raised in, like, this very poor orphanage and didn't have anything and, like, bought his way into the Yakuza as an adult after he was a self-made man. And so it made him, like, super bitter. Mm-hmm. Because all of his, like, morals are based on you have to grab what you can and, like, money buys power. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kazuma is this most traditionalist. But one of the interesting things is, like, midway through the game, when Mine and Yakuza first run into each other, like, Mine comes in and you've, you'd already fought, uh, Kondo, who's this big guy that you fought in, like, his hotel suite in the Love Hotel. Mm-hmm. Where he's just wearing a towel. <laughs> And you, like, do the massage move on the yeah, bed that's you're also like, being... Yeah, you, like, knock him out on this rotating bed in the <laughs> Love Hotel. It's great. Um, But Mine, as part of Apology, just brings you Kondo's head in a giant box. And he's like, I'm sorry about this. And then they, you have this stare down. And Mine's like, I don't understand what the chairman that you left in charge sees in you. You're just, like, another thug like these guys. You're just a guy who talks with his fists and speaks big but isn't about anything. And... Then you, like, try to defend yourself or your friends try to defend you, whatever. And he's like, no, you don't, like, we're Yakuza. We have responsibilities and you want to walk away from all that and still claim, like, a moral high ground. And he's right. Like, yep. that's the thing that I like about Mine. In that one moment, he is totally right about what Cosmo's done. Because it's not, in- it's not, not even in that one moment, like, what makes Mine a good villain and what makes the ending of the game so satisfying is that Mine isn't wrong. He just has a warped perspective. Mm-hmm. And you, it, the game makes very clear about you understanding where he's coming from rather than making him just a bad guy that needs to be punched. And one of the things Yakuza 3 doesn't address that I'm hoping will be addressed in the sequel is that if Kazuma really wanted to do the most good, he would not not be a Yakuza. No, he would just be the boss. He of would the be Yakuza. the fourth chairman, and he would run a bigger orphanage because he'd have all the resources to like set one up. Like he mm-hmm. could take care of hundreds of kids instead of just ten. He could just yeah, he could make compromises and run the Yakuza as the best Yakuza they could be. But because and- he has this like super traditionalist, like moralistic view of right and wrong, the things he does actually bring people greater harm because he wraps them up in his idealism. Mm-hmm. Like when he attacks Kanda, that's like an idiotic thing to do. Yeah. And it just causes it. It opens up the other the the who what's his name the dangerous one the the other one the weird one who's like the outlier who doesn't really figure into the plot but statue. yeah. Um, uh, what, I don't remember his name? his name off the top of the head. Let me look it up. Let me. Look there are it too up. many names to remember. <laughs> yep. Let me look it up. Let me look it up. Uh. Sorry, there are so many names. We can edit this out. Uh, Go Hamazaki. That's yeah, Hamazaki. Yep. Who is like, they're like, oh, he only, he like took over Kamurocho with like a group of 10 people, even though everyone else has like hundreds of Yakuza under their employ. It's like, maybe, like, we don't even know how to happen. It turns out he's working with the Chinese who show up out of a Shaw Brothers film. Like, it's oh. just Chinese guys dressed like a hundred years ago with like weird, like, spears walking <laughs> into modern day Tokyo. <laughs> That scene is so dumb. <laughs> yep. It's the just... most cartoonish kung fu movie scene in the entire game, and it's the best. What's, what's great about that is that not only are they, have they come out of a Shaw Brothers movie and uh, weird like Chinese people from years ago, they're also the first people to really carry guns. Yep. So you're just running through shooting all these people. Yep. And then you have a showdown on a roof uh, with, I don't know what weapon he uses, but it's some... Ridiculous traditional Chinese weapon. Yep. And then 
your friend's, your dead parent's brother shoots him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you haven't played the game, you're not going to be understanding a word we're saying because we're just bouncing from problem to problem. But it does, it does make sense in the game. No, and one of the interesting things about Yakuza is that because it's a Japanese game, you'll spend like hours and hours literally curb stomping people to death. But the minute someone pulls out a gun, it's treated as like this really grave point uh, in the story. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, they have a gun. Oh my God. Like, wh- what is even happening? The first time it happens is with the Liquid Snake. Yep. Uh, before you. He just pulls out a handgun and it's like this moment with Kazuma's a handgun. Kazuma's face yep. just goes, oh, I am fucked. Mm-hmm. If he, he, I could be dead right now. Yep. Uh, because it's... like that's way more real than guys running around beating each other to death. Yeah. In the in the world of his narrative, because Japan doesn't have guns. Also, that's how I would as in a country that doesn't have guns. That's how I think of guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in America, like you know, Kazuma would have a gun before he learned how to like do a suplex. Mm-hmm. And in this like, in this game, you get guns very briefly, and while they're incredibly powerful, like it's not the point of the game. No, they're just like a quick power up. Yep, that you can go through large groups of guys with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, fighting dudes with guns is very hard. Because they'll just shoot you. They don't care. They don't give a fuck, nope. Yep. What a cool thing. Yeah. It's a weirdly, like, for all of its melodramatic nonsense, it's it's really rich in, like, what it's about and both, like, just its emotional content. Like, it's a game that is content to be really silly and really serious all at the same time. My favorite example of that is the scene where, spoiler, uh, Rikia dies. <laughs> because... It is the most nonsense melodramatic thing to ever occur in a game full of nonsense. Like, Ricky sacrifices himself to... (laughs) Also, it takes place five minutes after after an old man, like, throws a bull. (laughs) Because he's put in a bullpen to be murdered. Five minutes after, he throws a bull because his daughter, his adopted daughter, finally speaks to him. Yeah, because she'd been traumatized. And she's like, Daddy! And he, like, plants his feet and grabs his bull by the horns and literally throws it. (laughs) This game is just full of my favorite trope, which is people gaining uh, inhuman strength through the power of metaphor. <laughs> when a, whenever a thematically resonant thing happens, they become inhuman for about five minutes. Yep. It's great. And then, so he sacrifices himself and gets shot and has this five minute long conversation as he dies. But it's like uh, the saddest actual thing. I'm, I'm, and I'm crying. At the, I start out laughing because then it brings in the cheesiest guitars. Yep. But as he's like, asking if, if he's a takes real his man. Hand and they're like crying together and it's beautiful. Yep. It's so good. I was, I was in tears. I got me, I mean, not an achievement. I cry at everything. But, it, like, Kazuma breaks down at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh. But then they don't even, like, I like that they don't play it as, like, I now have to go get this guy for Rikia. Because all that stuff is... Act- like, the guy who shot Ricky has already been dealt with. Like, this is just his shitty, like, last resort thing. Well, and, like, Cosmo did- doesn't get any revenge. Cosmo just has to go still take care of business. Well, they they do that when the orphanage... When the, when the orphanage finally gets, like, knocked down. Mm-hmm. That's the moment where you're like, okay, fuck this guy. I gotta do this. Yeah. But... Like, none of... the, the Ricky's death is the only real big death in the game. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. And, uh, Mine's as well. Yeah. That's a different thing. And they allow that to be its own thing without tying it to motivations of revenge or, like, propelling Kazuma forward. Yep. Like, it's just a tragedy. 
Yeah, because you, like, in the middle of the game, you spend a bunch of time with Ricky, like, he has a tattoo that his, ta- like, his artist died before he could finish it, so you have to go find a guy to get him to finish it, and, like, the guy doesn't want to do it until Ricky, like, proves prove his true that, self. Yeah, can prove that he's, like, someone worthy of this tattoo master to finish his tattoo. Uh, did you do the quest with Ricky as, like, the girl that he knew from junior high who's now, like, yep. a dancer? Yeah, and it's just this mini arc of Ricky, like, Getting his, Being like, ridiculous. Like, letting himself be a doormat because of these dumb morals that him and Cosmo both have. Mm-hmm. Which are totally, like, backwards and unhealthy things, yep. especially in the relationship with this guy, yep. this girl. <laughs> but he's so earnest about his shitty ideals of youth and manhood mm-hmm. that it's impossible to just not, like, love him. Yeah. And so Cosmo just, like, adopts him as, like, his younger self. Like, it, you could see if Ricky had survived, like, him being the guy you actually play as in a future game. Yep. Yeah, I could see that. And the game itself wraps up. I I love the ending of this game. Yeah, because you get like the guy that you put in charge had been shot at the very beginning of the game and no one knows where he is and by the time you find out, you have to go to this hospital and fight your way up to the top of the hospital. And not only is Mine's like whole army of men there, but the CIA are there and the CIA don't know that you're working with one of their agents. So they're going to try to stop you also. Yeah. It's one, they said the CIA are helping you now, but we haven't been able to contact the ones at the place you need to go. Like something's happening there. You're going to have to fight. Them. Oh, of course. But you are working with the CIA enough to, to go to the final area. You take a stealth jet with your adopted you daughter. Ta- yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> you do take a stealth jet with your adopted daughter. And then you walk off the stealth jet and she said, stealth jet and she says, did you take me here because you knew you were going to die? And you just like look stoically off into the fe- into the No, you, you apologize. Say, I'm sorry. Yep. This is, I just wanted to come here with you. It, I'm being, I was being selfish. I should have thought of your feelings. <laughs> it is so good. And then you go to the hospital, you fight Liquid Snake. You, no, you, you fight an army of men, including guys like leaping down into an elevator. Like it actually is Metal Gear Solid. Mm-hmm. And then you fight Liquid Snake. And then you fight Liquid Snake again, and then you finally reach the top of the building, because every Yakuza game's finale takes place on the top of the building. Uh, and Mine is there with the chairman of the Tojo clan, just on a stretcher on the top of this roof. About to be pushed off the roof. (laughs) Like, he could have shot him, but no, he's going to push him off the roof. And instead of a fight, you just have this, like, Seven minute long conversation. I mean, then you fight him. You fight after, but the fight is incidental because you know you're going to win because Kazuma's victory is always assured. Uh, yeah, uh, but also my favorite thing about that mini fight is he almost has your entire move set. Like he's just you. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite dumb things that more video games should do: the song that plays over the final fight is the opening music of the game. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, clearly, well, one, right before you fight Mina is like, this is your last battle. And then you fight the last battle and the theme song and the gameplay. So it's literally the final battle. You know, it's the end because the music's playing. I so love... Five minutes later, I was thinking we were about to fight someone else. I know. And I was, I was going to be really disappointed because <laughs> then Liquid Snake shows up again and reveals himself to be the leader of Black Monday, Andre and Richardson. Yell at the which, screen like, no shit. Which is the most, like, Japan does not understand how Americans are named name in the entire world. Andre Richardson. I'm Andre Richardson. Hello. <laughs> Who sounds like that? Like, it'd be fine I'm if he, like, Andre sounded, Richardson. like, European. Like, I'd buy it. He's got the jacket for it. 
but that he just sounds like the most American man and looks like Liquid Snake and has a name like Andre Richardson as part of a group called Black Monday of all things. <laughs> so named because they caused the financial disaster. Yeah. Not because of any like death thing. They just like, oh, and then the actual ending of the game, of the actual victory is the, after he, Kazuma talks to, um, Rikia Mine, uh, about no after after Kazuma talks to Mine and after oh yeah Mine, Mine sorry yeah uh, Mine like sees Daigo wake up for the final time he like realizes what he's done mm-hmm. and f- in the f- like, gets one of my favorite redemption moments ever yeah because the whole difference between Mine and Kazuma is that Kazuma believes that people inherently can be good and should be given the chance to be good. And Mine mm-hmm. is, like, people will always betray you, so you need to just grab power as, like, ruthlessly as you can, so people yep. can't hurt you. And that, the game, like, doesn't write Mine off and treats him as, like, you always have a chance to, like, Kazuma is never going to give up on someone. They always have a chance to come to the good side when they want to. Yep. And allows him that, and the big final moment of the game is Mine sacrificing himself. Also, everyone who ever dies in um, Yakuza game dies with Kazuma shouting at them not to die for about 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, they don't, like, Mine is, like, gonna sacrifice himself and Kazuma sees it, and he's like, no, don't like, do that. You don't can, do that. You can still do good. Don't don't throw away your life like this. Mm-hmm. And he falls off the edge into this big, tragic final moment. And Even- then Kazuma, like, <laughs> won't admit that he was the guy who betrayed the Tojo clan. He's like, no, he was true to the end. Yep. It's, it's, <laughs> just the most being good man bullshit till the end is perfect. Which brings us to the actual ending of the game. Oh. I was, because there's a Yakuza 4 in which Kazuma Kiryu stars, I was not expecting the actual ending of the game. Yeah, neither was I. So you and Haruka, <laughs> are, like, going... You're, like, in Kamurocho, like, probably heading back to Okinawa. You're just walking through the square outside the theater. And, uh, Hamazaki, right? That's his name, mm-hmm. right? I he looked comes it up, up before. To you. Yeah, yep, Hamazaki, Hamazaki comes up to you after he had disappeared after you, like, took out the Chinese. Like, they're like, oh, he fled the country, but no, he's just looking like a bum. He's, like, beat up and he's wearing, like, dirty clothes. And he comes up to you and you're like... No, you need to like turn yourself in. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Like, let's let the past be the past. And you like extend your hand to shake his hand because Kazuma is that person through and through. And then he walks up and he just stabs you in the stomach mm-hmm. and you fall back bleeding. And Haruka's like screaming and runs up to you. And the in poli- one of the most perfect final shots. Yep. She's like, she's like over you as you're down on the ground. And he's like, Haruka, don't forget to believe in the good of people. <laughs> And then yeah, just like, like fade, like the camera pulls up out of the city and cut to credits. The final line is like, uh, people, uh, Mine told me that people can be good even in the final moments of their life. Yep. And bam, cut the credits. And I'm like, uh, and then there's a post credit scene that reveals he survives, but I don't care. Yep. Like, of course he survives. Of course there's another game. For me, that scene is just like, Kazuma is like killed in the most mundane and needless act of kindness possible yep. after all the drama has been done. But also his like last act is one of imparting this like moralistically pay it forward belief in humanity to his daughter. <laughs> it's just the ending of pay it forward. <laughs> like he just wants, he just wants her to have this one, like if it, his last lesson is like be compassionate to other people and like mm-hmm. she's the one that he's like everything he does is seemingly for her. Like it always has yep. been. Mm-hmm. 
And he, his knowledge is never give up being kind. Yep. And the game ends. It's the best. Oh, it's the exactly best. what you'd want out of one of those. It is perfect. Yep. And I'm so excited to play four. We will someday. Like not for this, but we oh, will. No, both, I'm just going to play four. We will soon. both play the Yakuza series going forward, for sure. Mm-hmm. Very excited I, that five is finally coming out. I, I'm sure it's all, partly just because I played three and not one and two. But the story of three seemed better than the story of one and two. Um, I think a lot of that probably has to do with they could invest more in like the actual cutscenes and stuff. Ah, uh, I don't know. I think that it's just my preclusion towards uh, this weird orphanage thing. And oh, it, sure. It but down I, on... I also think that the inclusion of like being able to do like actually emoting characters. Like, that, that's a game that's helped by its fidelity. Like, it has just enough. Like, we didn't talk about it, but my favorite thing about that game is that the characters are not realistic, but they emote really well, but also the world is just the most bright Sega Arcade 2000, like, it's like Crazy Taxi-esque big world with, like, meters everywhere and everything's a little too slick. Like, it's clearly not a Western game, because it's small and full of details, but in, like, this, like, we forgot to put textures on everything kind of way that I just love. I love the way games like that look. It looks great. Mm -hmm. It creates this, it's, it's approach to open world design is... We didn't even even talk about that. Like, the idea that you can go into all the restaurants and the restaurants have individual menus and, like, the bars have real liquor. And if you go into the convenience stores, they have real, like, ramen bowls. Like, I could go to the Asian market and pick up the exact ramen bowls that are in that game there and eat them. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, one of the best moments in the game is when you go to the restaurant with Rickia and you can pay for him and he just cleans you out and just, (laughs) you know, and if you did, like, if you did that in uh, a GTA game, everyone would get pissed off that some guy stole your money without you deciding him to, he could do that. But here it's just like, who cares? Because you can get more money, whatever. It just treats the open world and the systems within it as a method for storytelling. Yep. And inter- like, you arrive, uh, Ricky arrives in Camaracho, uh, and you have to find him by him emailing you where he is, and you like running around and not knowing where he is. It's the most awkwardly designed, yep. weird, gamey thing ever, but it captures the feeling of trying to find someone who's new in a city better than anything else. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, I'm at one of the. He's like, I'm near Millennium Tower. And you get to Millennium Tower, and he's like, I don't. I'm at a convenience store, but I can see the Millennium Tower from here. And you're like, you idiot! You can see Millennium Tower from like <laughs> five different places in this city. <laughs> that have convenience yep. stores. And you just run around the city for about 10 minutes looking for him, and it commits it commits this messy thing, but accepts the messiness and uh, like knows the, the benefit to committing to its weird uh, systems that aren't completely polished is yep. going to be far outweigh any kind of smoothing down of rough edges. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a game that hilariously has, like, ten mini-games. Like, you can bowl, you can do darts, you can do... They're fucking do, terrible. You can, yeah, you can play golf, you can do pool, and all That's of the, the mini-games are the game worst. Ever made. Oh, you go it's to the, the batting cages. <laughs> I like the batting cage one, but it's also terrible. It's just press X at the right time. Yeah, no, they're the worst mini-games you've ever seen. And it's, oh, they're, they're all terrible in, like, this great way, though. Mm-hmm. Well, they're terrible. Like no one had played a video game since 2000. Yeah, but they're like they're like consistently terrible. Like they're kind of like all bad in the exact same way, and that it's clearly just a perfunctory mini game. But they all have like like 
Kazuma's reactions, like when you're playing golf for the first time, and he's just like, yos, when you do well, are just my favorite things in the world. See, also, the the mechanic where you can take pictures of stuff, and the way the cutscene goes when he's uploading this picture to his blog. He has a blog! He has a blog that he, he puts in on his, like mid-aughts Japanese dumb phone where he's just like typing furiously with T9 to like make this blog post about this picture that he took that taught <laughs> and, him how to do moves and this the, the cinematography is like a 7,000 weird angles of fast cuts as this noise like he's like and then he hits it and just like cuts on his face as he's gained knowledge and then you get to see his blog post about oh this guy had a hard time carrying soba noodles I bet that if I threw up items into the air I could punch guys and then catch the item before it came back down. Yep. Oh, <laughs> it's perfect. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. What a fantastic thing. That game is just like a super rich world that you, that like, because we were talking about space, like the, my favorite thing is that you can interface with almost nothing in it. No. And everything you can interface with is clearly delineated, but the rest of the world is still packed with stuff. Like, you go into the Club Sega, and you can only use the UFO catcher or the weird shoot-em-up machine, but there's just, like, Virtual Virtual Fighter 5 cabinets and, like, weird pachinko machines that you just can't even, like, interface with. They're just there to be part of the world. But, like, what could be seen as a flaw of it is that it's a very artificial world. It, there's no real... I mean, you can bump into people, but there's no real physics. There's no real sense of physicality mm-hmm. to being in the world. Or as opposed to Grand Theft Auto, which approaches everything with a very specific sense of physicality, that is what causes its weird, uncanny valiness. Like, you can walk into a road and get run over by a car. That doesn't happen in life. Yep. And I, I remember when I was when I was playing, I was uh, on Skype with you, and I'm like, one of my favorite things in this game is there's traffic, but you will never be hit by a car. No. And you would never, a Western game would never do that where the cars won't hit you. No, and you can't, in, the only way you can interact with people is if there's a big sign saying this is an interaction. Yeah, there's, no, there's a press X over their head. There's no real physics, there's no real way of tangibly having an impact in the world, but because it embraces that and through its artificial systems attempts to create something a bit more honest, mm-hmm. it comes through far better than a half-assed attempt at reality that can't be well, yeah. in any way replicated. It's a world that suggests itself more than, like, is a thing for you to engage with. Like, it's a world yes. that doesn't care about you. It's, like, the fact that it's an open-world game, but really there's, like, a dozen streets in the entire game and that's it, is, like, really important. Because it suggests, like, if this place is so full of stuff that you can spend, like, 40 hours doing it all, like, imagine an entire city like that. Mm-hmm. But you could never make that realistically as a human being. And nor, you'd get a, nor you'd, would you want to. Yeah, you'd get an empty game like the Grand Theft Autos of the world. But it, because they focus down, it's much more meaningful that all that stuff is there. Yeah. The, the, you know the street names by the end because mm-hmm. there's only seven street names. Yep. You know what's on the streets. You know where the clubs are. You know where your friends live. It, it, we were talking about how to create a space well. This Yakuza nails it. Yep, for sure. That's why we thought of it. We don't have any questions today, do we, Jackson? No. If you want to ask us a question, please send us a Twitter message. Uh, hit us up on the email. It's abnormalmappingpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we will answer whatever. I mean, you don't have to send them, like, when we put out the call, just send them and we'll stock them up. We always have things to talk about, and we're willing to answer whatever you want. Um, next month, we are having a special guest. You put this together, Jackson, so you can yes, introduce I did. it. Next month, uh, we 
will be to- Oh, hang on. Hmm, sorry. I had a throat thing. I didn't want to just burp all over our podcast. That would have been very rude. Mm. Anyway, yes. Yeah, you can hmm me all you want. Next month, we are having a special guest. Heather Alexander is coming on to talk about Grim Fandango with us. Yep. Heather Alexander, someone who has been doing great work in the games thing, uh, trans gamer think on Twitter. Uh, what is a good example? She did a video recently about Skies of Arcadia, which you should go watch. Yep, it made me emotional. Yeah. Because not only it, it was actually not even about Skies of Arcadia, but the video. You used that as a jumping off point. Yep. But yep. I actually have a lot of weird emotional baggage with Skies of Arcadia specifically. Yes. So it meant double for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's great. She will be very interesting on the podcast. I'm so excited for that next week, next yeah, month. I've already yeah. finished Grim Fandango. A little behind. I'm gonna the finish. Seat. It's a it's an amazing game. Yeah, I'm very excited. I'm gonna play it next week. Uh, when I talked about Resident Evil and walking through the mansion, I was also thinking about Grim Fandango because I played that game with tank controls, and I think that's the way to play it. Tim Schafer was right. There is a right should, way. Should I do it? I. If you've never played tank controls before, it's going to be kind of annoying to get used to I've them. I played with tank controls. I think I think I it's played totally heavy rain. Like when you play when you play Resident Evil, uh, you should play with tank controls also. Yep. No, I'll do that. If you if you think it's like central to the way that game, I operates. think it's better that way because mm-hmm. sometimes you just get hung up on stuff and like maneuvering spaces is weird and you have to think about moving through these spaces and I think that's valuable. Like it's harder and I think that's good. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. It adds something to the way you yeah, interact with the space. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes weird areas with like a lot of doors and like hallways and staircases are just hard to navigate as a human being. And I think that like tank controls replicate that in a way an analog stick never can. No. Well, analog controls are built to be ease of use and not really about actual movement. A- yeah. Actual movement. No. Mm-hmm. Point at the thing to get. If, movement controls are often designed to remove the feeling of movement in as much of a way as possible yep. rather than and engage I, with I it. mean part of this is I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been playing Monster Hunter which is a game all about like thinking about how you move before you move yeah even if you're doing it way faster than like Grim Fandango um, you know like if I'm going to take this potion I'm going to pose after I do it because you pose after you drink a potion so you have to think about when you're going to do it so you can get mowed down yeah so that's going to be a really cool one next month follow her on Twitter and send in any questions if you want us to answer them. Yep. In Oh, and also, uh, if you didn't listen to the last podcast, the RPG Explorers Club is back. We are going to be working on Final Fantasy VIII, also known as my favorite Final Fantasy, but I haven't played it in decades, so I hope it still is. We don't know when that's going to be. Uh, probably in six weeks, but we will see. Yep. Depends when we're all done. We're just leaving that open when we get to the point to the podcast, we'll do it. We're yep. not going to rush. And, uh, plug zones, Jackson. Go plug your zones. Uh, I am at TYLA002 on Twitter. I have Patreon at patreon.com slash Jackson Tyler. And I have a movie podcast called Trashback Ratio. You can find Trashback Ratio at trashbackratio.com. Thank you. Um, I am LitRock on Twitter, L-I-T-R-O-C-K. Uh, I have a book club, I guess. I'm also on Trashback Ratio, but I have a book club at booksforcooks.tumblr.com. Um, I was on the most recent Badland Girls episode, co-hosting with Destiny Sturdivant. Um, that was good. Check it out. They're a good podcast. Uh, Destiny's on here pretty often, but that's her main podcast. We might be doing those more often, eventually. We're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's it. Yeah. Find a closer. Always be closing. No. 
No, you didn't just do that. Did you do that? I want you to think of a closer. Okay. What is a how? Wrap this podcast up. Make it make it on point, on fleek. I'm putting my headphones down. (laughs) This is not okay. That was all you you did that on purpose. You did that deliberately. It's all on you. You need you need to salvage this, or it's all going to be this. I, w- I won't. I won't. I will let your incomplete and utter disaster. <laughs> I've been just... hosting this podcast for two hours now. You need to give me a break. Goodbye. <laughs> I don't fucking know. What is this? Let's get it.